As I thought about how to begin today's episode, my mind kept coming back to my apartment's utility closet, which isn't as dramatic an opening as I would like, but it is the truth. Now, when I moved into this shabby apartment back in 2005, I always left the closet door open. That's so when I came home late at night, as I often did, I could walk in, flip on the light, and see immediately that no incels were hiding in wait to rape and strangle and kill me. Because that can happen. You, audience, you clicked on a true crime podcast, so presumably you know how that story goes. This is not that story, and it's not why my mind went to the utility closet. Jump forward to 2009, same apartment, same closet, and I, a newly minted, albeit unemployed attorney, was half-heartedly hunting for a job while devoting the bulk of my energies to penning my first novel. Because that's who I am. Never mind that I had just spent three years and $100,000 learning to think like an attorney, and the next logical step would have been to grovel at the door of every law firm in the city until one offered me a job. Because that's not who I am. Instead, I decided to walk in the footsteps of the thousands of would-be novelists who had gone before me. Those with no experience, no education, and no other qualifications in writing or editing. Because that... That's who I am. Impractical. Capricious. Forever attracted to the unattainable and the improbable. And as I was writing this, my first novel, my only novel to date, that is when the funk came into my life. I don't recall how it started exactly, but... One day, this disgusting stench entered my apartment. This smell, it was it was like fermented garbage, had a threesome with a sweat-soaked plumber and an old matron who, though still alive, smelled as though her flesh had already started to decay. That, my friends, that is as close as I can get you to what this funk smelled like. So I threw open a window, I lit a scented candle, I took out the garbage, I cleaned, I cleaned the floors, I cleaned the walls, but the funk, the funk stayed, growing stronger and more potent by the day. And I soon traced its source to something in the utility closet. But what? Nothing but an air conditioner, a vacuum, and some pipes occupied the funk's lair. Nothing that should have smelled like a wicked threesome. Now, a sensible person, at this stage of the story, would have called their landlord and, depending on the quality of their rental management company, may or may not, have looked forward to having the problem dealt with. But that time, at that time, I was 
not a sensible person, not an assertive person. If anything, law school had weakened my ability to advocate for myself. It was like a boot camp, except they forgot that after tearing you down, they were supposed to build you back up, stronger, better than before. So I did nothing. And as the days passed, the smell drifted further into my abode, repelled back to the closet only by fresh air from an open window. And so I, I left the window open, and I wondered, what is it? What is causing this horrid smell? A rat? Did a rat die in the wall? Or, or is it something else? At this time, a retired elderly couple lived in the apartment next door to mine, and one day it came to me that I had not laid eyes on the wife in, in what felt like a very long time, and I wondered. So, I sat at my computer, and I asked, What does a decomposing body smell like? Various blogs and message boards replied that it smells like spoiled meat, which makes sense, and human feces also makes sense, and a fermented garbage. It's humbling, I think, to know that one day, you, me, we all might smell like the used grease bin that smolders in the alley behind every restaurant in America. And as this situation with the funk was going on, I was, as I said before, writing my first novel, my only novel to date, an old-timey detective story set in 1912, and I was doing a copious amounts of research, an unhealthy sinkhole for the unemployed and the inexperienced. And as I sat wondering about the funk and the missing woman from next door, my mind turned to that stack of research material, and from there, it turned to a small town in Montana, just north of the Continental Divide, and to a warehouse that no longer exists, and to people that have long since passed. A tall, black smelter stack rises alongside the highway as you approach Anaconda from the east. From the earliest days when electricity was harnessed and sent through copper wires, Montana miners created a honeycomb of underground tunnels, a labyrinth to trap the unwary traveler, and hoisted copper from the earth. To the northeast, Butte, Montana's miners extracted the ore, and Anaconda processed it. Mr. Matt Pulich wasn't a miner, Rather, he owned and operated one of the many businesses that supported the Anaconda Mining Company and its employees. A Pulich and Grocers Company was, as the name would suggest, a grocery store, but also a saloon and a horse stable all rolled into one. Its namesake, Matt Pulich, was born in Austria in 1876 
and he came to Anaconda in 1900 and started the grocers with his brother, John Pulich. From what I can tell, Matt was... He was a bit of a character, the type to, like, punch you in the face over a land dispute on Tuesday, then pull you close and land a kiss on your cheek on Friday, then sue you on Monday. On the morning of July 3rd, between midnight and 1 a.m., Matt summoned a police officer to his warehouse to report that several boys had got into the place to steal flour and other goods. But the officer was less concerned with the thefts than with the bad smell emanating from the stable, and he told Matt, in short, to clean this shit up. That isn't an actual quote, of course, but you get the idea. True to character, Matt did not follow the officer's order, and in the heat of summer, the stench worsened. It escaped the stables, drifting into the surrounding neighborhood and wafting down Birch Street to the disgust of everyone, except, it would seem, Matt himself, for he did nothing about it. Eight days later, on July 11th, the smell became unbearable. Matt's neighbors complained, and the city sent sanitary officer Barnes to investigate. The officer, he, he looked around, and he found the stable in, quote, a bad sanitary condition, and he told Matt to, again, clean this shit up because, fuck, man, it smells like a dead body in here, No. Once again, that's not an actual quote. And though the stable and the warehouse were separated only by a low partition, the officers, thinking that the problem was confined to the stable, never ventured into the warehouse. And what you, students of exposition and foreshadowing, already know is that just beyond the partition, under a broken sack of flour, a human body was giving itself over to maggots and bacteria and to the natural process of decay. At about 8.30 p.m. on July 2nd, 1906, Eight-year-old Willie Bargovich bounded barefoot from his home, and he joined the other children who were playing in the alleyway behind Pulich and Company grocers that day. And being that it was almost the 4th of July, they were doing what most kids in the United States do to celebrate the end of taxation without representation. And they were blowing shit up. Willie sounds like he, too, was a bit of a troublemaker. In 1904, he and a friend were arrested for throwing a rock through a store window, which is kind of funny considering that his father, John, was, or at least had been, an anaconda policeman. But if it's the same John Barkovich, I think it is, then his father had got into his own fair share of trouble as well. 
Willie's firework of choice that day was the Roman candle, a pyrotechnic star ejected from a device attached to a wooden stick. About 9.30 p.m., Willie gripped a Roman candle between his fingers, lit the fuse, and when fire struck the powder charge, the firework slipped from his hand, shot through the air, and it struck Matt's delivery driver, a man named Johnny Cleechan, in the shoulder. I imagine that this hurt like hell as getting hit by a high-velocity fireball, even a small one, tends to be painful. Predictably, Johnny was pissed off, and he and Matt gave chase, driving Willie and his friend, Herbert Bailey, down the dirt road. Eventually, Matt caught up to Willie. Now, while Herbert takes refuge in the shadowy space behind a barrel, Matt and Johnny drag Willie back to the warehouse. It's unclear, even in piecing together half a dozen or more accounts, who else was in the alley and who saw what, but Herbert's older brother Thomas suddenly appears in the story, like a magician going poof inside a cloud of smoke. Thomas tells Herbert to stay hidden and watch, and then, poof, he disappears from the story again. Where he went, or what he was up to, is left to the reader's imagination. From his vantage point, Herbert sees Johnny momentarily leave the warehouse to retrieve a lighted lantern from the store, and shortly after Johnny returns, hears Willie call out, Come and help me. They are kicking me. Followed by groaning noises, like like something was pressing on him, that then faded into silence. Herbert remained hidden until after the midnight curfew bell had rung. Sometime later, when Matt and Johnny emerged from the warehouse, he saw no sign of Willie. Also worth mentioning is that at some point in the evening, maybe around 10 or 11.30 p.m., Willie's older brother, John Barkovich, and John's friend, Rudolph Erwick, went to the Bailey house to find Willie and to bring him home. They would later testify that Herbert told them that Willie wasn't at the house, and if they didn't believe him, they were welcome to look. So Herbert goes home, and either that same evening, or possibly the next day, Herbert tells his mother, Lizzie Bailey, that Matt and Johnny are holding Willie in the warehouse, and on the morning of July 3rd, Lizzie marches down to Matt's store and she confronts him. According to Lizzie, Matt told her that they had let Willie go. Curious, because... Willie was still nowhere to be found. Likewise, on July 3rd, Willie's brother John, accompanied by two of his friends, confronted both the delivery driver, Johnny Cleechan, and Matt Polich. Johnny simply said that he didn't know anything about Willie or where he was, and Matt, being Matt, gave a slightly more 
a theatrical response when he grabbed a broom and, using the handle to drive John and his friends from the store, laughed and shouted, I kill him! I kill him! Not the best thing to say when a child is missing. After Matt runs them off, John and his friends crept out back and they searched the stable, but... Like the officer who had been there the night before when Matt had called about the stolen flower, they saw no sign of John's brother. Thinking that the men were holding Willie to punish him for the firework incident, John went to the police station and he reported him missing. John returned to Pulich and Grocers the next day and again confronted Johnny Clechan. This time, Johnny made the same denials as before. Then he called Willie a thief and said the boy had stolen some flour. This accusation, it didn't sit well with John, who in turn called the delivery man a liar and accused him of trying to extort money for the supposedly stolen goods. To this, Johnny replied that Willie had, quote, already paid for it. Which, again, not the best thing to say. There's no mention in the newspapers of any efforts to find Willie between July 4th and July 11th. That would be the day that the neighbors reported Matt to the city's sanitation office. It sounds like some people thought he'd run away or they'd heard a rumor that he'd run away, and it doesn't appear anyone connected the smell coming from Matt's warehouse to the missing boy. There was a custom in Matt's store that Johnny would bring flour from the warehouse to the storefront every day for sale. However, on July 12th, 1906, the store began to run low on flour, so a clerk sent a man named Thomas Carroll to the warehouse to fetch some more. Thomas returned minutes later, empty-handed, and saying that the grain smelled bad. So the clerk sent Thomas and another man, James Hyatt, to clean up and to rearrange the sacks of grain and oats. Thomas and James would later say they had moved as many as six to eight bags of flour when Thomas saw a piece of spoiled meat, the apparent source of the foul odor. But as he leaned in closer, he realized it was, well, it was indeed a piece of spoiled meat, just not the kind that he had imagined. The decomposing flesh before him took on the shape of a human foot and further up a hand, and Thomas realized they had uncovered the body of a small boy. The stench was so so horrible by now that Thomas had to leave. The clerk summoned Matt from the cellar where he had been working, and Matt telephoned the coroner's office. Willie's body was, as you can imagine, in a rather bad state by the time officers hefted it from underneath its temporary resting place. The coroner had the body taken to Lolly and French Funeral Home, and there he examined the remains, and he found that Willie had a fractured skull on the left side of his forehead, 
a broken jawbone, and, quote, other marks of violence upon the body. One eye had fallen out of its socket, and his tongue was protruding, which is common after death, as the muscles around the mouth slacken, the tongue naturally slides out. A constable Lynch reported that when he had arrived, Willie's body was lying on or between a couple of sacks of grain with a sack on top of it. Lynch and James Hyatt agreed that the sacks of grain could not have accidentally come down on top of Willie because the sacks were simply too heavy and the stacks too short for them to have toppled on their own. Lynch said that he hadn't noticed blood or other signs of violence. Only a sack of flour near the body, which was covered in maggots and in bad condition. The newspapers made little mention of an official investigation, though one must have taken place. I can tell you that a policeman took Herbert to Matt's store, where Herbert said to Matt, You know you killed Willie. After that, Matt and Johnny were swiftly arrested and indicted for the murder, and County Attorney John H. Tolan took charge of the case. At the request of Matt's attorney, the two men were to be tried separately. And after several delays, Matt's trial commenced on October 15th of 1906. Reporters covering the event said that Matt constantly chewed gum as he watched every movement of the attorneys, the judge, and the jurors. Herbert's testimony, unchanged in the preceding months, was more or less supported by the other children who had also been in the alley behind Matt's store on the night Willie had died. Like Herbert, Thomas Bailey testified that he was near the alley at about 9.15 p.m. and, like his brother, had witnessed Willie strike Johnny with a lit Roman candle. He saw Matt and Johnny chase Willie down and drag him back to the warehouse. He said, quote, I told my brother to stay there and watch. But, once again, there's no mention in the newspapers of what Thomas did after that. 11-year-old Annie Groose testified that she saw Willie hit a man with a Roman candle sometime after dark, though she couldn't recall the exact time. And she saw Matt chase Willie down. She knew Matt's face because her mother had shopped at Matt's store. However, she had been called back inside her house, and she didn't see Matt catch Willie or see the men drag him back to the warehouse. Another 11-year-old girl named Lottie Robbins also saw Matt hit a man with a Roman candle, but she thought that the incident had occurred earlier in the afternoon, like, say, around 5 p.m. Like the others, she saw a man chase Willie, but she couldn't identify the man, and like Annie, she had gone back inside and did not know whether Willie had got away. Eight-year-old Jenny Rich saw Willie shooting fireworks between 9 and 10 p.m. and saw him hit a man, who then gave chase. However, Jenny testified that the man did not catch Willie. Rather, 
she saw Lizzie Bailey, that would be Herbert's mother, a pole Willie into the house, then call the other Bailey children home. Jenny's friend, Francis Rom, corroborated Jenny's story as to everything except for the time. Now, taking all of the children's statements together, I think that the most we can say is that Willie hit a man with a Roman candle at some point during the day, and this man chased him. Whether he caught Willie, what time the incident occurred, and whether Matt or Johnny were involved are all up for debate. Matt's trial was no no great spectacle, though the obstinate store owner did leap from his seat during Lizzie Bailey's testimony and yelled, How you know you talk to me? And as Matt's attorney, J.H. Duffy, cross-examined Lizzie, she admitted that she had been less than forthcoming with the defense. Prior to trial, she had apparently told Mr. Duffy and others that she knew nothing about the case. When pressed, she admitted the county attorney had told her not to talk to anyone, including Mr. Duffy. The county attorney told you to lie about it, did he? Mr. Duffy asked. Uh, No, sir. As Mr. Duffy moved away from the judge, Mr. Tolan turned to him and said, You would have told her to lie about it. And for a moment, it looked as if the spat between the two attorneys would turn into a proper fight, but, alas, they soon returned to their civilized facades. The defense theory of the case was far from outlandish. Mr. Duffy suggested that on the night of July 2nd, Willie had broken into Matt's warehouse to steal flour, and that a stack had accidentally fallen and had either incapacitated him, and he had died of starvation or dehydration sometime that week. In support of this, Mr. Duffy called Dr. Spellman, who testified that Willie's skull had not, as the prosecution had claimed, been fractured, nor were there any broken bones in his body. His brain, by the time Dr. Spellman had examined him, was in a liquid state, and the flesh of the neck was destroyed to such an extent that he could not tell if any violence had been done to it. In short, the doctor testified there was no evidence on what remained of Willie, that he had suffered a traumatic injury, or that he had been beaten. Next, the defense called Dr. Slight to testify as to how long it would have taken Willie to starve to death if he had, in fact, been pinned under the flower or rendered unconscious for an extended period. The newspapers don't give an account of Dr. Slight's testimony, and it's difficult to estimate, even with modern forensics, how long Willie could have survived before he became dehydrated and his kidneys started to shut down. The rule of thumb is that a person can survive three days without water, but age, overall health, and environmental conditions all play a role in that equation. Historical records put the temperature at between 60 and 80 degrees. 
assuming it was at least that hot inside the warehouse, Willie may have lost a lot of fluids through sweat and could have died as early as the next day. Matt did not testify in his own defense, but it did come out through other witnesses that Matt apparently thought that the death-like smell coming from the warehouse was from a bag of broken flour, which, okay. The newspapers do not state why Matt or one of his employees didn't investigate further and why no one attempted to clean up the mess before July 12th. To rebut the Bailey boys' testimony that Matt and Johnny Clechan had been in the alley on the evening of July 2nd, the defense called about half a dozen people who claimed that they were either with Matt or that they had seen him up front in his store and in the saloon from about 8.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. that evening. Uh, first up, a cigar maker, identified as W.J. Ritz, said that he was in the saloon along with his business partner, Frank Mueller, until about 11 p.m., and they had shared several drinks with Matt while Johnny tended bar. Frank and W.J. both swore that Matt had stayed in the saloon the whole time, except for a moment when he had merely stepped out the door. Frank also remembered seeing Matt's bookkeeper in the office talking to Matt. The bookkeeper did testify that he had finished work and had left the store office between 8.30 and 10 p.m., but that was really all that he remembered about that night. A Mr. and Mrs. R. Crowley reported going to the store for tobacco and staying for a couple glasses of beer. This was between 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., and Matt's friend Phil Daniels had also stopped by, though Phil couldn't remember exactly what time. Other employees and Matt's brother John generally corroborated the other's testimony. And one of the saloon's regular customers, Luca Ruzic, said that he went to Matt's saloon at about 11.20 p.m., and by that time, Matt was alone. However, a Mrs. Goforth said that she'd gone to the store for some change at about 9.15 p.m., but she only saw Matt and Johnny in the bar. Finally, two men, Horastus Sabrat and Santi Marganti, testified that they had taken a horse to Matt's stable at about 10.30 p.m. They had gone to the saloon to fetch the stable key, and Matt had grabbed the key and accompanied them out back. When the three men arrived at the stable, they found that the doors were already unlocked. Santi, the first man to reach the stable, swore that he heard children's voices, and when they entered, they had noticed a small sack of oatmeal on the floor with a rope tied to it and the other end of the rope leading out the window on the Birch Street side of the barn. The men peered over the partition and into the warehouse, but they saw nothing and heard no other sounds. So, as with the children, Matt's flurry of alibi witnesses both 
support and contradict one another. For example, where W.J. Ritz and Frank Mueller both swore that Matt had never left the saloon between 9.30 and 11 p.m., that can't be true if, in fact, he accompanied Horastus and Santi to the stables. But while the prosecution made a point of asking each defense witness if any had talked to Mr. Duffy or other members of the defense before the trial or whether they had visited Matt while he was in jail, implying that the witnesses had been pressured to lie. I really, I see no evidence of that. Rather, I see evidence of memory in action, of the natural forgetting and remembering and misremembering that we all do every single day. On October 21st, 1906, the case went to the jury, and after little more than an hour, they acquitted Matt of the murder. The next day, Mr. Tolan dismissed the murder charge against Matt's delivery driver, Johnny Clay Chan. But despite this, Matt, he was far from satisfied. On November 24th, or a little more than a month after the trial had concluded, Matt was riding the late-night train from Butte to Anaconda when he noticed the county attorney, Tolan, sleeping in another train car. Matt woke him up and demanded access to some things that he had left at the jail after his release. Mr. Tolan told Matt he could pick the items up whenever he wanted, but apparently this wasn't good enough for Matt for he began to verbally abuse the county attorney and a, quote, wordy war ensued. Either it went beyond a petty argument or Mr. Tolan was the vindictive sort because as soon as the train pulled into the Anaconda station, Mr. Tolan had Matt arrested and charged with assault. This is a man who, I think, simply did not care to stay out of trouble. However, this latest charge did not quell Matt's spirit, as a mere four days later, on November 28th, Matt Pulich married a Miss Anna Zupan, and they embarked on a ten-day honeymoon. Yet, yet still, Matt was not satisfied. On July 21st, 1907, a rather bizarre article appeared in the Butte Minor. It seems that a mere ten days after jurors had acquitted Matt of Willie's murder, the store owner had, quote, procured Herbert Bailey and had taken him to the office of Assistant County Attorney Joseph McCaffrey, who had assisted in Matt's prosecution. According to a letter signed by Mr. McCaffrey and furnished to the newspaper by Matt Pulich himself, Herbert told Mr. McCaffrey, in the presence of Matt and another witness, that he had last seen Willie at about 9 p.m. on July 2nd and that Willie was in the stable when Santi Marganti returned with the horses at about 11.30 p.m., 
the letter goes on to say that Herbert confessed that he had lied about Matt and Johnny pulling Willie into the warehouse, that he had not seen the two men in the alley that night, and that when John Barkovich, Willie's brother, had asked him at about 10.30 p.m. where Willie was, he had told John that he didn't know, even though he knew his friend was in the stable. The letter does not say how Herbert could have known this for certain if he had in fact last seen Willie at 9 p.m. McCaffrey next wrote, I further certify that the affidavit was made without any inducement and that the mother of the mild Bailey boy was very much excited when she found out that he was in the office with Pulich and the others mentioned. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. I, too, would be very much excited if I found out that the man my son had testified against in a murder trial had somehow procured him and had taken my son to an office to make a statement. Mr. McCaffrey continues, She sent her oldest son up, I'm assuming that's Thomas, and I also told him to write a statement of how the affair was in so far as he knew, and that he wrote an entirely different account than he had originally sworn to. I also asked him, Herbert, why he had told the story he did, and he said he was afraid to change it. We, of course, have no way of knowing what transpired before Matt hauled Herbert into McCaffrey's office and can only guess why Herbert and Thomas suddenly changed their stories. And regardless of which version of the Bailey brothers' account is true, it's impossible to take the second version at face value. Looking at the situation through a modern lens, the circumstances under which the statements were obtained were clearly inappropriate. Mr. McCaffrey basically had a child, well, in the presence of a man who may have murdered this child's friend, confessed to perjury, and he didn't even do so much as call the child's mother first. I will say I think there are elements of both accounts that ring true. I can see why Herbert might have lied in the beginning, then as things progressed and the situation became more serious, been afraid to go back on that lie. And there were always things about Herbert's story that bothered me. For example, if Herbert really did see Matt and Johnny haul Willie into the warehouse and beat him, why tell his brother Thomas as much than not tell John Barkovich the same when John came by looking for Willie later that night? Mm. A part of me wonders if Herbert and Willie did break into the warehouse together to steal flour, and if Herbert saw the bags of grain topple and crush Willie, then either knowing or at least believing that Willie was dead. I wonder if Herbert wasn't scared that he would be blamed for Willie's death. So he concocted a story, 
one that would both compel someone to search Matt's warehouse for Willie's body, but also one that didn't in any way place himself in the warehouse or put him at fault for Willie's death. A story concocted from events both true, such as that Willie had struck a man with a Roman candle, and made up. Now, all that being said, there were also things about Matt and Johnny's behavior that made me wonder if they knew more about Willie's death than they ever let on. Like, how did they fail to notice the dead and decomposing body in the warehouse? I have photos of the building, and it wasn't that big, not a sprawling mass where a corpse could easily hide. And as the delivery driver, Johnny would have been in and out of that warehouse every day to pick up flour and take it to buyers around town. For ten days in July, the smell of a rotting corpse filled the warehouse and fumigated the surrounding neighborhood. Matt said that he'd thought the flour had gone bad, but he never checked. He knew that a boy was missing, at least the two people accused Matt and Johnny of harming said boy, yet he never checked. Not even out of concern for his own inventory. He called the police to report a theft, but he never made even a cursory check to see what had been taken or how much. And what are we to make of Johnny's ominous statement that Willie had already paid for the stolen flower. Now, I can summon a thousand retorts to explain away Matt and Johnny's spectacular ignorance. I'm an attorney, after all. I can argue anything. But do I believe them? There is plenty in life that we simply will never know, and... As with so many unsolved mysteries, the truth in this case rests with the dead. Following the trial, Matt sold his store and left Anaconda in 1908. And after opening another saloon in Roundup, Montana, he lands in Billings, Montana in 1933, where he started a real estate company. While I'm not sure that I buy Matt as a cold-blooded killer, he was no altar boy either. He was cited or arrested multiple times, mostly for liquor license violations, such as selling beer to a minor, selling alcohol to a Native American, which was illegal in those days, and allowing a woman to work as a bartender, also illegal at the time. He was once described as, quote, well-known about town, in a way that suggested he was well-known for all the wrong reasons. Mr. Duffy continued as his lawyer, at least until the mid-1920s. Matt was a good business, after all, litigious and always in trouble. Matt and his wife, Anna, had at least three sons and two daughters, and many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Anna died in 1957, 
1969, at age 92, Matt was found dead in his home on I a Wednesday afternoon. I couldn't find any record of what became of Johnny Clee Chan or the Bailey family. There were plenty of Herbert and Thomas and Lizzie Baileys floating around Montana in the early 1900s, but there's simply too little information to definitively identify any one of them as being the same Baileys from 1906. Antoinette Barkovich, that would be Willie's mother, had 12 children in all, including a son named George, who was born in 1907, the year after Willie's death. Antoinette survived until age 89, dying in the care of St. Anne Hospital in Anaconda in 1963. I found an obituary for a John Barkovich from May of 1929, but I'm unable to determine if this was Willie's father or his brother, John Jr. I can say that John Jr. tried to follow in his father's footsteps as a lawman, and he even put in a bid to run for Anaconda Sheriff under the Democratic ticket in 1916, but he lost the race. I can also say that Antoinette's obituary mentions her having only one surviving child at the time of her death. That would be her youngest son, George. And finally, I can say that after 1906, Willie Barkovich is not mentioned by the newspapers again, not in any of the obits, not during his brother's run for sheriff. Not until 1997, a full 91 years after his death, does his name appear in print again, this time as a footnote in the obituary of his brother, George, a brother that he never even met. <laughs> 